it's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, am I putting new wine in an old wineskin? Coming up in this episode... It was common knowledge in Jesus' time that putting new wine in an old wineskin would burst the wineskin, waste the wine, and make a mess. Jesus used this common life example as a teaching tool. But what did he mean? Does this somehow relate to our ability to mess up our Christian lives? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Mark 2, 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. One of the greatest Christian challenges of our day is living a God-honoring life in a world that basically thinks we're nuts. What role should our differences with the world around us play in how we do or don't fit in with all that goes on each day of our lives? What specific principles do we have that govern our thoughts, words, and deeds to keep us godly and yet approachable? Jesus' parable of new wine in old wineskins answers this. This parable is part of a specific answer that Jesus gave to a specific question. His answer also included two other very simple parables. And as we will see, these three short examples combine to teach some important lessons relating not only to prophetic events, but to our personal behaviors and choices as well. The context of these parables is important. Jesus is talking directly to the disciples of John the Baptist at a very important time. Jesus will teach them how the age is changing and they need to change with it. Old Testament prophets carried messages of obedience and righteousness to Israel, and John the Baptist was the last of these prophets. His work was foretold in the books of Isaiah and Malachi. He's a cousin and a friend of Jesus with exceptional character, devotion, and passion. And when reading these three parables, we will be referencing Matthew 9, 14 through 17, Mark 2, 18 through 22, and Luke 5, 33 through 39, as each account brings specific details to light. Now let's begin with the question that was asked by the disciples of John, and we're starting in Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours, and they're talking to Jesus, eat and drink. Why do your disciples not fast? So this is an important question. They have an issue, and it's a good thing that they're coming to Jesus and asking him specifically about fasting. Now, fasting was a regular part of Jewish culture. Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and there were also national days of fasting. John's disciples were faithful to the austere lifestyle of John the Baptist himself. However, there's a little bit more to this particular question and the reasoning for it. Uh, Julie, let's go to a, a Bible commentary by Albert Barnes on this. Albert Barnes says, they had understood that John was the forerunner of the Messiah, and if such was the case, they could not account for the fact that there was such a difference between them and the disciples of Jesus. Besides, it's probable that this question was put to him when John was in prison, and his disciples, involved in deep grief on account of it, observed days of fasting. Fasting was a natural expression of sorrow, and they wondered why that the followers of Jesus didn't join in with them in lamenting the captivity of the forerunner and baptizer of their Lord. So it seems like John's followers aren't fasting because aren't fasting because it's an appointed day to fast. They're likely fasting because John here is in prison, and so they're in a state of mourning. And and that's an important uh, issue in in this particular question. So we want to keep that context in mind. So Jesus answers this very valid question about fasting in a prophetic and very unusual way. And we'll go back to the account. And Jonathan, let's go to Mark two nineteen. And Jesus said to them. 
While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast or mourn, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Because if the bridegroom's around, it's a time for feasting, not fasting. So here Jesus uses the picture of a bridegroom. That's really interesting, and we're going to see why shortly. So he's answering, Jesus is answering this question regarding both the disciples of the Pharisees who fasted regularly and John's own followers who are personally asking this question. Um, and, and again, they would have presently been in this mournful state. And he's focusing on something specific. He, you know, in, in, in that first part of that scripture, he talked about, well, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants, you're not supposed to fast. And we continue with the account in Luke 5.35. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. This is important because Jesus is saying the combination of fasting and prayer are not invalid, but they do have seasons of appropriateness. So living in the moment that they lived, and this is, this is where this all comes down to, living in the moment that they lived was the only time in all of history that the Messiah would be among men as a man. Jesus saw the necessity for the three parables and their lessons he was about to teach to be unfolded because of the uniqueness of this time, the uniqueness of this moment. And as he is going to put this these parables in place and teach these lessons, what we're going to notice is everything revolves in his teaching around John the Baptist. There are things that Israel was in, was in position for. There's, there's three things we want to touch on as we set the, the groundwork here. First, Israel was an expectation of their Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 tell that to us. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we aren't told how many disciples John the Baptist had, who's exactly in the audience, but we could say whoever he baptized were his disciples. We are told that the apostles Andrew and John both followed John the Baptist before they followed Jesus. And the book of Acts tells us about Apollos and a dozen followers that lived in Ephesus also were followers of John the Baptist. So he had a small group of very faithful followers, and, and that's significant because there was a, a lesson that needed to be learned here. So the first point was that Israel was an expectation of the Messiah, and as a matter of fact, they're asking, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? The second point is Israel was informed as to who this Messiah was, and guess who informed them? Yeah, it was John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the, of the world. This is he on whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Just a note, Jonathan, you're reading from the book of John. The Apostle John is writing about John the Baptist. So there's two different people named John. That's right. And it's important to realize, John the Baptist, and it, when it says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, you know, behold the Lamb of God, this is the day after the, the Pharisees are questioning John. Like, what are you doing? Why are you baptizing? Who do you think you are? All of these kinds of things. And so the very next day, John's introduction comes into play. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is aware, and he's pointing Israel toward the Messiah. So Israel is an expectation of the Messiah. That's the first point. They think John is him. Secondly, John is the one who says, there, he's the man. He's the one. Follow him, not me. Thirdly, Israel was instructed to follow the Messiah. And guess who instructed them to follow the Messiah? Yes, it was John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verses 35 to 37 and 40 to 42. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. One of them who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and said, you are the Simon, the son of John. You will be called Peter. So you have John the Baptist, and it's interesting to me that after he talks to the Pharisees, it said the next day, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then the scripture says, and the next day after that, John is standing with two of his disciples. Jesus comes walking by, and what does John do? He points again, behold, the Lamb of God. And the beautiful thing is, two of John's own disciples look at John. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm building on this a little bit. You know, they look at John, they look at Jesus, and they look at John like, we're going to follow him. And, and that's the right answer. The right answer is, follow him. I'm here to introduce him. Then one of those disciples named Andrew is actually Simon Peter's brother. He finds Simon Peter, brings Simon Peter, says, hey, we found the Messiah. Come here, quick. Simon comes, and you know Jesus immediately, he meets Peter, and what does he say? Or meets Simon, and what does he say? Simon, son of John, you will be called Peter. So there's this great sense of Jesus' authority that John the Baptist himself is preaching about, describing, preparing for, and introducing. It's very clear. It's very specific. This is important as we get into in the next segment, what these parables are going to be all about. So all of this preparation, uh, the expectation of Messiah, informing who the Messiah was and instructing to follow him, came from John the Baptist himself. So as we look at condensing and, and, and wrapping up each thought pattern, we've got three things we want to talk about. We want to talk about changing, stretching, and progressing. Because each of these words, changing, stretching, and progressing, has to do with each of the three parables that Jesus is going to speak. So, Jonathan, what do we have changing, stretching, and progressing towards Christ? Those in Israel at the time of Jesus' first advent had a unique opportunity to see their Messiah in action. His very presence called for action on their part. While many saw this call, few actually followed its direction. And let's ask a personal question. When I see a call to come up higher, do I try and ignore it or do I run to embrace it? For many of us, our conscience will be uncomfortable. And the more we ignore that nagging feeling, the easier and easier it gets. And the gravitational pull of staying where we are is too strong. So we need to understand that what John, John's disciples need to learn from Jesus, the same principles we need to learn in our own lives as well. So there's so much to learn when we stop and consider all of what Jesus did and stood for. His presence changed history. Now that we have a clear sense of the context, what was the message of these three parables of Jesus? We want to suggest that these three parables were spoken to illustrate three different ways lives need to change when given the opportunity to follow Jesus. The first parable is about garments, a patch, and a bad decision. As we will see, this is a great example of how easy it is to be drawn to a worthwhile change, but not be committed to that worthwhile change. So we're going through these three parables one at a time. Right after Jesus had spoken about appropriate joy because he is the bridegroom, he next gives the garment and patch example, and we're going to continue the parable starting with Luke 5:36. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of unshrunk cloth from a new garment and sews a patch on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old, and a worse tear results. So Jesus is talking about something very plain and very simple. And he starts out by saying, no one does this. So this is a, look, don't try this at home. You know it's going to fail. All right. But he's using this as a very important lesson. So this very short, very, very succinct parable has three key factors to it. So let's go through. Julie, let's start. What are these three key parable factors? Well, there's an old, worn, but obviously comfortable garment that's torn badly enough to need a patch. And there's a new unused, unwashed garment that could supply the patch for the tattered old garment. The dilemma is, if we use the new patch on the old garment, it'll be ruined because the new patch will shrink and tear the old garment even more. And of course, the new garment then is ruined because we've just cut a hole in it. So obviously, no one's going to do this. Right. This is a classic lose-lose scenario. 
but and, and we'll get into why is Jesus talking about something so obvious? And, you know, it's a great question, and, and l- l- let's open it up. We're going to suggest that this old garment represents the law, the Jewish law, and its necessary sacrifices. John the Baptist was all about helping the people to repent for their sins. We want to suggest that the new garment mentioned in this parable represents the actual redemption for sins that Jesus himself brought. But Rick, what's the difference between repentance and redemption? And why would it require this metaphorical change of clothes? So repentance was something that Israel had to constantly do. Throughout all the Old Testament, <laughs> prophets showed up and said, hey, repent, you're messed up, you got to get back. Repentance means to acknowledge your wrongdoing, to confess that wrongdoing, and then to change your direction. Redemption, however, That was pictured in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but Jesus brought actual, real, permanent redemption from sins with his life. So it was a brand new thing, and it means there needs to be a brand new approach because repentance, while it was good and you had the sacrifices of the Old Testament, it it had no ability to be permanent like the redemption that Jesus brought. So we look at all of this. John and his followers, they knew that John's work was to decrease when Jesus began preaching. When Jesus and his disciples were baptizing in the same area as John, we're going to drop in on on the context of another conversation, This, this working in the same area, they're both doing the baptizing, stimulated questions from John's disciples. Let's go to John chapter 3, the book of John chapter 3, verses 26 to 30. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you beyond the river Jordan, to whom ye have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. So let's pause right there, because John is answering this question. They said, okay, you know, Jesus is getting people flocking to him, and, and you know, it's like we're, we're not as busy as we should be here. Uh, what, what, what's happening? You know, the, the business is going to Jesus. And John's response is wonderful. He said, you're my witness. I've already told you I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. I'm doing my work, and he's doing his work. And then John continues, and what he says next is absolutely landmark for understanding how Jesus uh, is 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 so much different than John. Jonathan, go ahead with verses 29 and 30. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, Rick, John fulfilled his mission and he did it well. John's work was done, but Jesus's was beginning. John's disciples must have been confused, but look at that special example that John gave. Of all the possible illustrations he could have used, he points to the bridegroom. Remember when we started with the disciples of John asking Jesus why Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting? He had answered that while the bridegroom is here, it's not a time of fasting. So Jesus used John's own illustration of that bridegroom to identify with John's followers and have them connect to what their next step should be. I think that's profound. It is profound. And I, and I think, and, and this is an opinion, I, I really think that John and Jesus talked in between at times, and they both understood one another, and they both would use the same kind of language because they're, they're about the same work, just different phases of that work. So the work of John, the message of repentance was a good and needed message, and that was what John's work was about. However, it was a message that was running its course, and Jesus the bridegroom, by John's own words, was now there drawing people to him, as he should be. Jesus' parable was showing—now, this is the parable of the the old garment and the the new patch. Jesus' parable was showing John's followers a prophetic change of age. They, the followers of John, were wearing the old garment of the law. It had served its purpose, and it was now tattered. It was now worn. John's followers were looking to patch it— why aren't your followers fasting like us? 
to, to, to have Jesus followers fit into the same mold. They were looking to patch that garment instead of seeing the new garment of redemption from the bridegroom and the new age of grace from that bridegroom that Jesus brought. And John's disciples were trying to patch the soft old garment by looking at Jesus and saying, identify with us, be in mourning with us. No, says Jesus, you should be celebrating with us. Things have now changed. And and Rick and Julie, change is uncomfortable. Think of uh, a new dress shirt. It's stiff, scratchy, and itchy, especially if you have to wear a tie. But Jesus's point is we need to grow into that which is new. And because it's not comfortable doesn't mean it's not good, right, or appropriate. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I have that vision, you know, having to wear a new dress shirt and even to have to wear a tie, my neck gets all red underneath, and it's like, ah, oh, man. And, and, you know, it's like, I can't wait to wash this thing. So it softens up. So you do have that very, very logical, very natural reaction to that new garment, never been washed, brand new. I'm like, but this thing is just so comfortable. They were comfortable where they were and looking to patch where they were, to keep where they were. But the whole point here Jesus is saying is, this is something new. It's something better. It will replace what you have. Talking about garments, that's what's on the outside. It's what about me? So how do we present ourselves outwardly to others? Am I holding on to my own ways? Having seen Jesus, do I take an appreciation of this redemption, Rick, that you talked about and try to patch it up the look that I'm comfortable with? So we might be uh, appreciate, let's say, the teachings of Jesus, but still live however we want to. It's being a fan of Jesus instead of a follower. Someone like that might say something like, this is just the way I am. Don't judge me. I'm not going to give up what I like to do, but that doesn't make me a bad person. Or I can do whatever I want Saturday night as long as I go to church on Sunday. But this isn't being transformed. Yeah, you know, and, and just a, a quick personal story on that. My, my sister, Merrily, who actually we did a podcast with uh, several months ago, uh, she went, was going to a specific church for a long time. And what she found was she was comfortable in that church, and it was a a wonderful community environment, but it wasn't teaching doctrines of biblical truth. It wasn't holding fast to those things. And little by little, she began to get uncomfortable, but she was so comfortable with those there. And, you know, she and I would talk in between, and at some point it was like, Mare, you know what you have to do, right? And she says, yeah, I know. I do know. And she, it took a little while. She got the courage. She sat down with the pastor and explained, I can't do this anymore, and here's why. She stopped with the old garment. She didn't try to patch it up, and she put on the new. It took a large step, but that was the transformation that really we're talking about here. Just as John's disciples needed to learn to transition from old to new, we need to be reminded as well. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver, silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. To those around me, do I look like a vessel of honor or dishonor to God? And How am I coming across? Because that'll tell me which garment I'm wearing. We can't be associated with these earthly things like the law was. We are cleansed, it says, from dishonor because we're making the change to spiritual things. So we can't say, I love Jesus, but I'm cheating on my spouse. So our garments, our clothes are on the outside. And how we look on the outside plus our inward heart is what drives us forward. Yeah, and you can't forget both of those things. And that's why Jesus is speaking this parable to John's disciples. He's telling them, you need to step forward. You need to step out of where you are and into something bigger, new, and perhaps difficult because you're, you're very comfortable. So it's a transition. This transition means that we are to be clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. Not patched, clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. Galatians 3, 24 to 28. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So you notice what this verse is saying. For if you were baptized into Christ, truly baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourself with Christ. And the next phrase is, there's neither Jew nor Greek. You know what? You've left what was old behind. There's neither slave nor free man. You know what? You've left what was old behind. There's neither male or female. You know what? You've left what was old behind. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You've put on this new garment. So we have to ask ourselves, if I'm just wearing a symbol or a piece of the redemption in Jesus that I have access to, I got to ask myself, am, am I at all prepared for the life and experiences of a true Christian disciple? Just wearing a token, I love Jesus button, isn't enough. <laughs> if we don't change our garments, we won't be prepared. Let's read Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. No provision for the flesh. You know, Julie, you mentioned some examples before. That's making a little provision for the flesh. A little bit more. A little quiet provision when nobody's looking for the flesh. This says make no provision for the flesh. Wearing Jesus only as a patch of righteousness only brings distress. It also does not look good, as others will see ill-advised <laughs> patchwork that simply doesn't match our lives. It's an obvious mismatch. And it might be some small witness, like the waitress forgot to add something to your bill at a restaurant, but you purposely don't tell her so that you can pay less than what you actually owe. That happens to us all the time. And here's one that's hard not to get caught up in. If we profess to be praying for God's righteous government to come in the kingdom, but we get all upset by earthly politics, and those who hold our opposing views, we're patching an old garment. Oh, that's going to hurt. That, but it's necessary. Jesus was telling very faithful men that they needed to move on from where they were. And so we, as faithful Christians, need to get that same message as well. True Christians ought to be selling out to their outward appearances, being unmistakably different than their natural selves. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So the idea of wearing armor is changing your garment. You look different. You dress differently. And if you're wearing, if you're fully armed with the armor of God, you therefore act like a soldier of Christ. That's what Jesus is really talking about in this parable. He's telling the disciples of John, move on from the law and on to grace and redemption. You need to make that transition because I, Jesus, am here. And for us, it comes down to that personal moving on from who and what we were and truly wearing the robe of the righteousness of Christ. So changing, stretching, and progressing towards Christ, what do we have, Julie? Every professing Christian has a choice as to how they're going to be perceived by others. And if we merely choose to wear a token of Christ on our outward lives, we'll be seen as a foolish and mismatched human being. Let us rather put away our old image in exchange for fully clothing ourselves with the redemption of Jesus. So it comes down to making a choice. Am I going to be foolish and try to patch something old with something brand new and ruin both? Or am I going to decide, okay, it's time to put one thing away and wear that which is new in Christ. So how we look to others is directly dependent upon what we choose to wear. Throw away the old and put on Christ. Being a Christian means we need to look like one. So what is the main lesson when it comes to new wine in old wineskins? Okay. The second parable is about careless and wasteful behavior. Back in Jesus' time, the folly of putting new wine into an old wineskin was well known. No one would do such a thing as it was destined for failure. 
But Jesus, using, by Jesus using the easy-to-understand example, he was teaching John's followers to be clearly aware of what was happening around them. You have to have an awareness of where you are and what's going on. Of course, we don't use wineskins today. Our wine comes in bottles or even boxes. A wineskin is an ancient type of bottle. It was made from leathered animal skin, usually goats or sheep, and they used it to store or transport wine. During the fermentation of grape juice, carbon dioxide gas is given off in about 40 times the volume of the juice. So new wine put into dry, stiff wineskins would burst as the gas expands. That's why we read in Matthew 9, 17. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And again, you see Jesus saying, look, nobody does this, but I'm using this as an example. So we've got some key parable factors here. Let's just define them. Julie, what do we have? There's new wine, and this wine needed the right time and environment to ferment to its full potential. There are old wineskins that have already been stretched, but were still good for old wine. There are new wineskins prepared for the very purpose of giving new wine the right time and environment to develop. So you've got new wine, old wineskins, new wineskins, three pieces. And we're going to suggest that this new wine is the new message of the gospel, the good news for all. The wineskins represent our lives. The old wineskins are human lives lived under the law at the time of Jesus' first advent, the Jewish nation. The gospel message could not be developed within that context. So the new wineskins are the new creation. And we're going to develop what that new creation is. It's a scriptural phrase to talking about uh, followers of Christ. So the new wineskins are this new creation that Jesus would begin as a result of his ministry and his faithfulness. Well, the Jewish age transitions to the gospel age. It's all brand new. It's so much bigger and more valuable. It needs a new wineskin, the followers of Christ. Exactly. You need the new wineskin for the new age, and this is precisely what Jesus is teaching John's disciples. Old lives are transformed by redemption in Jesus. That's really the basic, basic lesson here. So let's go back to the context of John the Baptist and his life. While he was in prison, John the Baptist experienced anxiety. He did not expect that his life would take such a turn with the Messiah present. He's sitting in prison, and the Messiah is there. So here's what he does. Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, John's expectation was something different. He and most of Israel expected Messiah to take over the whole world at that time with kingly power. And Jonathan, you read, go and report to John what you hear and see. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 35 and 61. He fulfilled all the prophecies. So in other words, yes, John, I am the expected one. And here's all the evidence. By preparing the people for me, you did exactly as God required of you. And you are blessed. What a reassurance. Yeah. And, and so you, you see Jesus giving the disciples of John everything they need. He's telling them, yes, the work is being done. I am who I am. I am the one. This is the way God's will is unfolding. So once again, there was a prophetic significance to this second parable. We looked at the first parable of the garment and the patch, and we saw the prophetic significance. Well, it's here as well. John was the last prophet of the age of Jewish favor. He handed God's plan over to Jesus, who began the age of the gospel. It was a change. Jesus took that plan and developed the bride of Christ or the body of Christ, the little flock, however you want to define it. That's what Jesus was developing. Those called out ones would not only put on Christ 
the new garment that we talked about in the first parable, but they would also be transformed by the redemption from the inside out. And that's where we come to the second parable about the necessity of new wineskins because the new message of the gospel needed that new individual to be able to hold its expansiveness. Literally, it needed to stretch. The lives of the followers of Christ need to stretch with the responsibility of the gospel. What about me? Am I appreciating the glory of the gospel message through the eyes and habits of my old self? Or have I been transformed into a true disciple of Christ? Outwardly, our garment can look new and we can look like a true disciple. But inside, where no one but God can see, are we jealous, bitter, manipulative, angry all the time? We can't store our new wine in that old, stiff, ugly wineskin. Many Christians appreciate the gospel message through the eyes of their old self, but are not transformed by it. This creates a contradiction. The wine bursts out because we aren't expanding with it. We become damaged, and our ability to carry the gospel message is wasted. Now, the new joy of the gospel cannot be carried by an old way of thinking. 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritually appraised all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, you know, when you look at the what about me question, the contrast is in this scripture. A natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, but we have the mind of Christ. We are in that position of being blessed to have the new wineskin to be part of that, to be stretching with the gospel, because that's what the mind of Christ is. It is the ability to take the, the, the focus, the sacrifice, the godliness, the scriptural adherence, and walk it each and every day. That's living as a new wineskin, not the old. What about me? Have the mind of Christ. So what about me? Am I reliving a renewed life, or have I just recycled my old one to try to fit it into the gospel message? So what you're saying, Julie, is sometimes recycling isn't good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, you know what? And and, and in, in this case, you're right, Jonathan, you're right, because that's, again, that's the dilemma that the apostles of John had. They were looking to recycle things to keep it the way it was. Jesus needed to gently, and I love the way he gently teaches them, I know that's what you think, but you need to see bigger. You need to come, he's essentially saying, you need to come rejoice with me to follow me because there's something new here. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 18. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this particular text is talking about becoming a new creature, becoming a new wineskin. We had that first parable. So here's what we've got so far. Wear the garment, be the wineskin. Wear the garment, be the wineskin. New creature, a new development that is so important in relation to uh, our dedication to God through Christ. Jesus is teaching the followers of John that they need to step up and now follow him. Let's keep asking, what about me? Do I walk in Jesus's sacrificial footsteps? Do I seek holiness? Am I truly transformed? What does my life actually prove? And Romans 12, 1 to 2 helps us to answer. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So you've got these verses that really help us to see things in a better perspective. 
A sacrificial life is having a new wineskin, seeking holiness. And when someone sees us, not only do we look different on the outside, but we sound different from the inside. And, you know, you got to think about that for a moment. Look different from the outside. Why do you look different from the outside? Because you should be wearing that new garment, that robe of Christ's righteousness. We should be wearing Christ wherever we go. And we sound different from the inside. Why is that? Because our heart has been transformed because we have been redeemed. Jesus is teaching John's disciples, you're missing that part. Step up higher. We also need to make sure we leave the old wineskin thinking and habits and expectations way behind because they'll break under the pressure of the gospel of Christ. It's a, it's a beautiful transition that requires work, and there's a little bit, you get a sense of, yeah, you could really make a mess here because if you try to bring the gospel into this old wineskin mentality, it bursts and it makes a mess. And Jonathan and Julie, I will tell you that unfortunately, a lot of those who say that they represent the gospel, they do it from a very earthly perspective. And they take the beauty of the gospel message and it bursts and it makes a mess. You can't recognize the gospel as something good. All you can see it as is a stain upon that which it fell upon. And what a tragedy. Don't go down that road. Changing, stretching, and progressing toward Christ. What do we have, Jonathan? The gospel message is no small thing, as it represents hope for every human being who ever lived. Am I a vessel of honor in line with God's will and spirit? If so, then this new message of great joy to all people can develop within me. Or am I someone who simply wants what I want, but I like the message? If so, then I can still appreciate the message but should not fool myself into thinking I am fit for the master's use. So this all comes down to our looking upon ourselves and asking, have I been transformed? Do I have the stretch within me to expand with the gospel message, to expand with what the gospel message requires of me? Or am I just pretending? Am I just wearing the button like Jonathan said, you, you said earlier? We need to be thoroughly engaged. Become that new wineskin, the new creation, so that you can handle the, the gospel of God through Christ with respect, honor, and dignity, and spirituality. The whole idea of being one who is capable of properly handling the gospel message is a really serious responsibility. Jesus seems to be teaching John's disciples that they are faced with a choice. How does their choice affect us? While Jesus' conversation with these disciples of John had clear importance to them, its value to us is no less all these centuries later. The third and last parable in this lesson is about old wine and new wine and the reluctance to give up what we like for something better. This is the age-old lesson of choosing to grow rather than choosing to stay comfortable and stagnating. The reluctance to give up what we like for something better. I like that because Jesus really knew us, didn't he? That he gave us this lesson. We're faced with this in every part of our lives because often that something better isn't tangible and it's in the form of some nondescript future blessing, some treasure somewhere in heaven but this here, I can see it, and I'm comfortable. Oof, it's a tough decision. It, it is a tough decision, and, and it's tough to let go of that which is familiar. And that, that is one of the classic difficulties that, that we all can face. And so these parables, while they, while they are very significant for the, 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 uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, they really have powerful lessons for us as followers of Jesus. So let's get on to this third parable. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Luke 5.39. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. There's an expression, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, meaning that when you're forced to decide, it's better to choose what you can cope with because it's familiar, even if it's undesirable, rather than what's unknown. 
Satan would love to keep us in this stagnant state where we don't keep growing towards God. So I would add to that old statement, worse is the goodness that you know, rather holding on to the goodness that you know and, and ignoring the greatness of God through Christ. They were stuck with the goodness of the law, and it was good in its time, but it needed, they needed to go further. So in this particular parable, I mean, this is literally a one-line parable. So there's only two key factors here. Julie, what's the first one? There's old wine and our habitual connection to it. And there is new wine and the opportunity and hesitation it presents. See, every time there is opportunity, there's also hesitation. And we want to understand Jesus is showing the, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, that they need to see things in a bigger way. We're going to suggest that this new wine still, as in the last parable of the wine and the wineskins, still represents the new message of the gospel. And the old wine represents the old ways of reaching up to God through the law and its rituals. To appreciate the new... Jesus was teaching that one must be able to let go of the old. The main point here was to leave all that was old behind for the sake of the new, for the sake of the new and true redemption, and for the sake of the beauty of salvation for all, for the sake of the gospel message that Jesus himself brought and exampled and taught. Remember, Jesus said, come, follow me. And in Hebrews 10, 20, it says, this is a new and living way. And also, this study made me think back in history onto the Christian church. Remember, Martin Luther saw in the Bible the truth of justification by faith. This is an example of putting away the old way of thinking and replacing it with something new and something true. A practical example of trying to straddle over both the old and the new, in addition to that justification by faith, justification by works, it might be that modern paganism that we see all around us. Episodes 1235 and 1236 highlighted why paganism like witchcraft and Christianity uh, don't mix, and it pollutes the name of Jesus. So we don't want to be deceived with the many ways it sneaks into our lives, especially through social media. And to quote a CQ listener named Landis, He wrote and said to us, no amount of true Christianity can fit into a worldly lifestyle. That's something we all need to consider as we review our earthly responsibilities, our preferences and desires. Yeah, you're going to see that uh, that old wineskin burst when you try to do that. Uh, You're going to see putting a a new patch on an old garment. It's not going to look good and it's not going to last no matter what. We have to move on from the old and on to the new. So now this simple, simple, simple third parable about having old wine, liking it, but not wanting to move on to something new. Jesus responded to the crowd. Now remember, in in, in our last segment, we talked about Jesus talking to the disciples of John. They're asking him, because John's in prison, are you really the one? And Jesus' answer was, tell John that you see the miracles, that people are being healed, that the, the dead are being raised. Yes, I am the one. So the disciples of John now are walking away. They're probably walking right back to John to report as to what they heard. There's a crowd that's listening in, and in the scripture it just continues. And Jesus is responding to that crowd when they, they, John's disciples left to go back to see John in prison. What we're going to see is how Jesus honors John as mighty in the eyes of God. And yet we're going to see Jesus also teach the difference between the old wine of Judaism and the new wine of Christianity. So let's look at Matthew 11, 7 through 11. We're going to stop a few times in the middle. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who was more than a prophet. Okay, let's pause there for a second. So Jesus is looking at them, and as John's disciples are walking away, he says, what did you go out to see? You didn't go out to see just an average person or somebody who's great and elegant. You went out to see a dynamic individual who is a prophet 
of the living God. Let's continue. This is the one about whom it is written. Now, now hold on right there. Whenever, here's a real key. Whenever somebody says, this is the one about whom it is written in the Bible, and it's a positive statement, you'd better pay attention because there's tremendous honor in that statement. Go ahead, Jonathan. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus is saying to the crowd, John fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. He fulfilled the writings that you have all heard read in the synagogue, and he was here to clear the way for me. And here's Jesus' conclusion about the work of John and John himself. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We said before that John the Baptist was prophesied about in Isaiah and Malachi. So here Jesus quotes from Malachi 3.1 when he said, Behold, I send my message ahead of you. John's role was very important, as you said, Rick, in this handoff between the ages provides another proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. This was the ending of the age of the old wine and the beginning of the new age of the new wine. The new message of the gospel, with its promise of a heavenly reward for true followers, now far exceeded the extraordinary work of John the Baptist. He will receive an earthly reward in God's kingdom. Remember, he died before the sacrifice of Jesus. And that statement, no one in, in the kingdom of God, John is, is every, everyone, I'm sorry, everyone in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. I mean, you get a sense of the value of this new wine. Stop with the old. This is, this is the import of what Jesus is telling John's disciples. Stop with the old. You need to rejoice with us. So when, when looking at the preference for old wine over new, the prophetic significance here obviously is dramatic. Prophets like John were what Israel was used to. This was the way they would be corrected. Jesus is telling the people that John was the last of these prophets. The old wine was now obsolete. He's teaching that the new wine of the gospel brings much more than correction. It brings glory. It brings heavenly call. It brings grace. It brings God's Spirit. It brings so much, and it brings salvation for every man, woman, and child. Let's bring it back to the practical. What about me? Do I gravitate towards the things in my life that bring me comfort? Am I attached to habitual ways of thinking and doing, or am I willing to fully embrace that which is new and holy at the expense of that which is familiar and human? Looking at our relationships is a good place to start our evaluation. Do I maintain friendships or romantic or business relationships that encourage more temptations and bad habits than blessings? Am I trying to untangle myself from worldly distractions? What about me? Yeah, you know, and that's the important question. Jesus is, is, is giving these parables so that John's disciples will say, what about me? And we need to say, what about me as well? We don't have the law to lean on, but we have our previous human life that we are so, so comfortable with. What about me? We have to put ourselves in a position for this transition. Our new wine experiences include being part of a new and holy priesthood. First Peter 2, 5 through 10, let's start with 5 and 6. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For this is a contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So what about me? This, the experience is you need to become this living stone. You need to put back, put away the things that were old because this living stone is part of a spiritual house. It's a new kind of house. It's a house built on spirituality, not the works of the law. Walk away from that. For me, in my life, it's walking away from the works of the flesh, from the works of Rick. The works of Rick don't matter. What matters are the works of Christ through Rick. Am I walking towards that? 
this new wine experience is based on something that old wine thinking flatly rejects. We see this in verses 7 and 8. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So it's interesting that Jesus becomes this stone of stumbling, this rock of offense, and that's why he gives these parables. He's showing that there is a contradiction between the old and the new. And those who want to hold on to the old are not going to look at Jesus and his message and, 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 and the path that he's laying out as valuable. They're going to look at it as, as a, an obstruction, and they're going to trip over it, and it's going to make a mess. We can't let that happen to ourselves either. The way of sacrifice is not an easy way. The robe of Christ's righteousness clothes us for that. Becoming a new wineskin gives us the ability to stretch into what's required. And now, old wine versus new wine, let me leave my life behind and go on to that which is promised, that which is new. This new wine experience brings us to a whole new level of serving God, not previously available. Continuing with 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, most of us now who come to Christ don't come from the Jewish nation, don't come from the law. We come from all different walks of life. And that's why this verse says, you weren't a people before, but you are now. You're something new. Have I walked away from who and what I was thoroughly enough to be recognized as being part of this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, a people for God's own possession? Am I walking in the newness of Christ and leaving whatever it was behind. See, this new wine experience requires the abandonment of all of our all old wine experiences. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul himself had to leave the old wine of the law and his misrepresentation of it, and he abandoned it, so much so that he ran away from it because he ran toward Christ, pressing on toward the goal, this one thing I do. This is the message that Jesus gave to John the Baptist's disciples. This is the message we need to carry in our own lives. So finally, changing, stretching, and progressing toward Christ. The three parables that Jesus spoke to John's followers instructed them and us toward three clear objectives. Julie, what's the first? Do not try and patch your old comfortable life with a token reminder of redemption in Jesus. Instead, clothe yourself with the new garment of Christ's righteousness. No buttons, no patches, none of that. Clothe yourself with Christ's righteousness. It's an unmistakable change. It's something that looks entirely different. Don't forget to fully clothe yourself with the righteousness of Christ. Second parable, Julie, what do we have? Do not attempt to accept the joy of the gospel message within the confines of your old life and guidelines. Instead, strive for the newness of life that only God can give and provide. The gospel message, a thriving environment in which to develop. We have to be an environment in which the gospel message can develop. And look, if the good news that I am preaching is not good news for every man, woman, and child who ever lived, then it's not the good news. Let's make sure that we can stretch to absorb the greatness of the gospel as we become this new creation. And the third parable, Julie, let's wrap do, that up. Do not hold on to those things that are familiar and comfortable because they are familiar and comfortable. <laughs> Instead, 
Leave your past behind and reach forward to the gospel message as your primary source of joy and fulfillment. So, folks, as we wrap this up, think about the simplicity of these three parables and how Jesus uses them to show us not only where we're going, but why we're going there. To show John the Baptist's disciples not only where they're needing to go, but why they're going there. There was a transition they needed to make to go from serving Old Testament principles to the New Testament of Jesus. There's a transition we need to make from serving the old ways of ourselves to the new ways of Christ. Take these parables, apply them to your life. Folks, listen, we love hearing from you, from our listeners. We, uh, we welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode... What can we learn from one of the wisest men on earth? That's coming up next week. Talk to you then. <laughs>